Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Adam Lawrence, co-founder and CEO of Boom & Bucket, a marketplace that's transforming how the $300 billion of heavy equipment gets traded every year. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Well, this is right up my alley. I love things that are in this kind of crazy space that you didn't even know that it was a $300 billion market. But when I looked at your background, you've been in quite a few industries. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you found your way into the heavy equipment space? Yeah, um, I think I've spent a lot of my career in spaces like that. So when I was an undergrad, I met Joe Lonsdale. He was leaving Palantir and starting a new company called Adapar. I joined as the first employee, literally interviewed in Joe's garage. Um, Adapar was building tools for wealth managers, which uh, more than a decade ago was not a sexy space at all. So we built uh, analysis tools and data infrastructure tools to kind of power the, the largest wealth advisors, solvent wealth funds, pension funds in the world. Um, I left, I started an HR tech company, sold it two years in. And then most recently, prior to Boom and Bucket, I was chief operating officer of a payments company called Bolt. Um, same thing when I got there, I'd like to probably characterize it as a, another unsexy space in the sense that we were kind of doing all the things that happen behind the scenes when somebody presses buy on an e-commerce website. Um, the growth there was fantastic. Left uh, a little more than a year ago to start this company. Um, the how we got here, I think, is maybe atypical for an entrepreneur's journey. I was pretty lucky in the early in that journey, I met my two eventual co-founders. They'd sold a company to Caterpillar. Um, they were left probably slightly unsatiated in the sense that they got a bit of success, but not kind of all the way. Um, Cap bought the company pretty early and then incorporated it um, into their platform. Um, the way that we went about it is we, we kind of knew the problem space in the sense that we thought uh, B2B was interesting, B2B e-commerce and marketplaces, just like the growth that we've had in commercial you know, um, marketplaces. We thought that's coming for the business world. We wanted the ability to build a business that we could build for decades, one that you could bring pretty substantial data effects to um, and build a moat over time. And then we like the idea that a space like this maybe doesn't always get the attention that it deserves from kind of A-plus operators and A-plus entrepreneurs. And so with that in mind, um, this space checked those boxes, but we didn't know what to build. And so we started through this process of exploration where the eventual outcome was this 125-page doc of lessons learned. But the input to that was cold calling people for Craigslist, calling uh, equipment dealers. Uh, we took a class to become equipment brokers, took another class to learn how to inspect equipment. We went very deep before we started sprinting. And so like the kind of um, saying like go fat or go slow to go fast, that was us. We spent a lot of time, partially COVID. One of my co-founders had just had a new kid. I was uh, at Left Bolt, needed a little bit of R&R. And so it was a good time to do that. Um, we left kind of that phase with a crisp hypothesis and started testing it last year. Um, got a first machine. Uh, built a website to sell it, um, had fantastic early results, and then now I've started turning that into the business that you see today. What was the first machine you acquired and how did you actually get it? Um, great question. Cold call from Craigslist. 
seriously seriously <laughs> wow we, we probably did 1500 cold calls last year between the three founders just to kind of build the muscle and talk to folks um it was a backhoe so it's a pretty common machine you'd see it on the side of a road and it was coming from a local demolition company so they were using it to knock down structures um their alternative was sending it to auction where it probably would have got 50 percent less than we got for it is craigslist a typical place where people would post stuff like that or is that a little bit more random no, it's it's pretty typical. Um, the, the like the current channels. So if you're a, a midsize or smaller fleet, you could send it to auction. Auction um, is pretty old school. Um, they're dirt fields outside of big cities, and they hold kind of quarterly or kind of biannual auctions. And your pristine machine that you've taken great care of, that you did all the preventative maintenance for, might sit next to something that's rusted out and barely turns on. The issue is, how do you differentiate a good machine from a bad machine when the auction is over in five minutes? You don't. And so sellers get poor price realization there and buyers get a bunch of pretty nasty surprises. Um, you could trade it in. Well, that only works if you're buying something new. A lot of fleets, just like a lot of savvy car purchasers, don't buy new. They wait two or three years so somebody else can deal with the initial depreciation. Um, and when you trade it in, just like cars outside of the past 18 months, they're going to give you a wholesale value which is typically uh, much lower than what you could get if you sold it on Craigslist or a Facebook marketplace or a classified system. The biggest classified system in this space um, has a big printed magazine that goes out. It looks a little bit like those real <laughs> estate magazines you might've gotten in front of a gas station uh, you know, over the past few years. Um, people flip through that, they call, um, and then they usually go and tour in person. Again, because there's no trust. And so they'll go kick the tires. They might fly or drive a few hundred miles um, and then they hope that their inspection is good enough to avoid kind of, you know, a big error or big miss on the purchase side. And so th these are just not great options for the, the typical, uh, buyer or seller. So our goal is to build a Carvana type experience, um, trusted, heavily leveraged with technology, um, and then kind of the additional F and I services that go along with that. Yeah. I was just going to ask about that. I was, there were two things that jumped into my head as you were talking. One is sounds actually somewhat similar to foreclosure auctions in terms of a lot of the dynamics around it. You kind of, it happens quickly. You don't know what you're getting. It could be an amazing opportunity or it could be a total shack that's falling apart. Yeah. Um, and then the other kind of parallel is the car market, used car market. And we've seen tons of companies get incredible traction, including public companies like Carvana on that. So what are the kind of areas where there are analogies and where does it diverge in terms of um, how the market is different? That's a really good question. So cars is a good analogy in most places, except for the underlying infrastructure. And what I mean by that is that cars have a VIN system, they have a Carfax system, and generally a Prius is a Prius is a Prius. Mm -hmm. You just have colors and options, but you can decode those colors and options through the VIN typically. Um, that doesn't exist in this space. And so to build a trusted marketplace, you have to build the infrastructure to underwrite the quality of a piece of equipment first. And once you do that, then you can layer on the things that Carvana is so good, on, good with, which is the browsing from the browser or from your phone, the purchase experience, the delivery experience, and the kind of the post-sale or after-sale support. Um, but we have to build the infrastructure. And so we're, we're building a lot of things that the car industry has built over the past 20 or 30 years to enable that online innovation. But I said, I wanted to build a company that has a moat. If we do that, that is one of the most substantial moats that you could possibly build is that you know nobody else will have that infrastructure. 
how much of that is human driven and how much of that can be tech driven. Meaning I would imagine at some point you need a human to go and inspect the piece of equipment and create, you know, I know in some used cars, they have like the 36 point inspection. What, what elements are kind of driven by that? Yeah. So there's um, a few places to capture data here. First is maintenance records. Um, 10 years ago, those were paper-based, often in a folder in a back office somewhere. Um, sometimes they were in Excel in a sophisticated fleet manager's office. Now those are all digital. Machines have barcodes and QR codes, a field tech scans it, and they enter in the work order. Um, so you can capture that information. Now you can see whether preventative maintenance was done every 250 hours like it's supposed to. So great, we can underwrite the quality of somebody's maintenance program. That's one. Two, um, for your annual check-in with your physician, you might get a blood test, right? And they might say, hey, things are mostly good except for this thing. Let's see if it's diet exercise, You know, uh, maybe put you on a satin or something like that. Machines are exactly the same way. Oil and hydraulic fluid pumps to them every single day. And when you have excess particulate matter, it means that something's likely to fail. So we capture that. It's a relatively cheap test, but we can only do it because of your, your question, which is we send somebody out to the field. Mm -hmm. And so we send somebody out to the field to do two things. One, go through a checklist process to create that 150 point inspection. You know, if it's a back, go up, down, forward, back, use the boom, extend, kind of do all the things that you're supposed to there in terms of daily use. Um, and then two, they take high quality marketing photos. So somebody can look at it from you know thousands of miles away and actually see the quality themselves in addition to looking at the video, hearing the sounds in the machine and comparing that to the data we collect. There's one other piece of kind of passive data that we can leverage, which is telemetric data, which is a relatively new thing in the field. So you think of a company like Samsara, for example, that's connecting a, a ton of trucking fleets. They're also capturing like engine idle, speed, G-forces. Same thing happens here, but they're also they're usually connected to the engine control unit. So you get error codes, overheating, excessive use. And so we can capture some of this in a passive way, begin to build an underwriting model that way. And then we do go out in the field because we think that that's the final important part to push it into the definitive, this is a great machine. This is an okay machine. This is a good machine. Here's what you should look out for. And then taking in all that data, how yeah. do you build that underwriting model and how do you ultimately price it? And can you talk, you know, look, I've never purchased or sold one of these items. So yeah. talk to me a little bit about what the price points look like and also how long they're in use. Yep. The most expensive thing we've sold is almost $600,000. So unseen, um, shipped 1500 miles. Um, the least what was expensive that? Um, it was an industrial grinder and the purpose of it, it's called a horizontal grinder. It looks like a big industrial wood chipper. Okay. And so you put, you know, wood debris in one side outcomes, uh, you know, wood chips, pretty simple. Um, it's one of those things that once you know what it is, you start seeing them on the side of the road everywhere. And they're doing like land clearing projects and stuff like that. Um, least expensive thing we've sold, we've sold like uh, commodity bobcats and skid steers and stuff like that. And those are 10, $15,000. Um, average selling price for something in the marketplace is in the many tens of thousands, um, approaching six figures. Um, what was your second question? Around uh, how much utilization they actually get. So how I oh. guess there's kind of a couple areas I'm curious about. One is yeah. how many times can it actually change hands and kind of what yep. is the lifetime of a piece of equipment? Cool. Lifetime of a piece of equipment. So um, big construction fleets and in our space, um, that's like the, it's called the ENR 400, Engineering News Report 400, biggest construction fleets in the United States. Many of them self-perform. 
And so you might hire one of these uh, companies to build a dam, a bridge, a, a highway, a skyscraper. Um, when you have a project that complex, it is incredibly important to maintain machine uptime. Why? Because there's a complex value chain that flows behind one machine. So if you have a machine scooping dirt, there's 20 pickup trucks lined up to move that dirt. And so if that scooper breaks, your whole day is ruined for 20 people, which is a huge expense. So better to buy new, get guaranteed uptime, keep it in the warranty period. Um, they'll usually keep it for a few thousand hours of use. So um, you know, one shift uh, a day, 2000 hours, right? For the year, two shifts, 4,000. Um, they'll move it out sometime after that. That's the first time it usually trades hands. And they might either trade it in if they're getting new stuff, or they might sell it uh, to a, like a regional firm. Regional firm might be doing parking lots, office buildings, kind of large projects, but smaller in scope than like a brand new airport. <coughs> they'll probably keep it for another four or 5,000 hours. So we're getting close to 10,000 hours of use. And then they'll move it out one more time. That would either be a smaller firm. Maybe they're getting their foot in the door and doing projects. Maybe they don't need to use it full time or it might get exported to another market. So there's usually three owners, sometimes more, sometimes less. It just depends. And it used to kind of two periods there, kind of that initial purchase from new and then another secondary one. Interesting. So are you finding the dynamic on the marketplace looks something like this? You have the fewest number of initial sellers, and then the long tail tends to be on the end buyers on the third cycle, because these are smaller, probably only have one, maybe a handful of machines versus the people who buy new might have dozens or hundreds. I don't know what the scale is. Yeah. So we're, we're scaling up. So the dynamics that we have today might not be representative of what we have in the future, but we have a few fleets that give us a ton of equipment. Yeah. So one of our larger customers will liquidate $150 million worth of equipment this year. Um, the people that buy that, um, some people buy in bulk, and then maybe that's a smaller rental company or like a regional construction firm. But a lot of those deals are kind of onesies, twosies in the sense that like, to your point, hey, I've got a gardening company or an excavating company. I've got a fleet of 15 things. So maybe that's a million dollars of equipment, which is a lot of equipment. Don't get me wrong. And I'm looking to add one more. Now my fleet's 16 things, you know, uh, uh, 1 million, 100,050 or something like that, right? In terms of the depreciation on these pieces of equipment, does it look similar to cars? Is it the second you buy it, it autom automatically depreciates significantly and then slowly trails off? Or what does that cycle look like? Um, hours is the biggest determination mm. there. And so it's like miles on a car. Um, and so uh, the warranty period and then after the warranty period is kind of the, the slope there. Um, and then warranty period can be variable because there, there's ways to structure longer warranties or third-party warranties and things like that. Um, the actual accounting depreciation, five to seven years. And then for many of these businesses, they're eligible for what's called bonus depreciation via uh, IRS section 179, which means they can take a full write off the first year um, if they fit in the revenue buckets. And so you have a usually uh, end of the year shopping spree. When can they get the numbers back from the account? And they're like, hey, if you buy new equipment, you don't have to pay taxes. Um, and so a lot of kind of things trade hands in December because of that. That makes sense. Yeah. Do people in the space have brand affinity and they only want to buy from certain branded uh, companies? Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's just like Chevy and Ford. Yeah. It's the same thing. Yeah. And, you know, some of it's certainly grounded, but I think a lot of it's just tradition, you know, Caterpillar created the, the dozer, for example, the, um, and so somebody's always been on a cat dozer in their entire life. Some of the controls are slightly different. Um, 
And then there, there's a lot of international um, OEMs that have entered the U.S. market, but they don't necessarily have dealership support like somebody like Caterpillar or John Deere would be. And so people are usually hesitant to buy them. Um, and so you tend, if you're buying new, people tend to stick with the local dealer um, just for that support network. On the large enterprise side where they're buying many, many, you know, to the customer liquidating $150 million worth of equipment, who is the persona that's actually dealing with the equipment? It's a good question. So somebody, th- there's a few, we, we call the persona Ernie um, <laughs> and we have a, a slide that we use in our seed round for that. But um, the job title is fleet manager. Okay. There's an association of equipment management professionals. That's their kind of uh, their professional organization. And they offer a certification, certified equipment manager, CEM. And some of these folks might've come up through, uh, maybe they were machine operator, maintenance, maintenance manager, and now they manage the fleet. The things that they care about are utilization uptime, which is a fancy way of just saying, do you have the right machine for the right job? And are you utilizing it enough to warrant buying it um, there or should you rent it? So right job, right machine type thing. Um, That is in a construction firm. These guys are great. They care about getting economic results because it goes right back into the business there. Um, in the really large fleets, we're usually dealing with somebody uh, in an office. And so like we have uh, one customer in New York base, that's where their finance team is, for example. And that is in the, the kind of CFO VP of finance office, where they are looking at the utilization rates, they're looking at the depreciated values, and then they have a goal to get a return on assets. And they're looking at somebody like us that says, hey, if you can bridge that retail to liquidation or retail to auction spread for us, and we can get that spread ourselves, that is a big increase to our bottom line. Uh Um, And so that is a financial and service sale in the sense that can we serve them and can we deliver financial results? Where the other ones are are certainly that way, but they're also a little more personal because some of these are smaller businesses where a, a handshake and a relationship of good service goes pretty far. I'm sure there's a lot of price optimization that you guys are doing, just collecting all of that data but also there's a take rate from that auction. What does the yeah. take rate typically look like for them? And then how is that translated with Boom and Bucket? Yeah, the, the auction house in our space, it's a publicly traded company. So, you know, we can look kind of back into if you take their revenue numbers and then their uh, transaction volume. Um, they're in the neighborhood of 15%. Yeah. Here. Big accounts might get a 68% commission um, there, but then there's fees for transportation, logistics, storage, a bunch of other stuff that pushes it back up. And so the relationship is one auctions don't get good price realization. And two people walk away feeling like they were nickel and dimed for everything. Makes sense. How are you handling the last mile, the delivery piece? Um, good question. Delivery is really hard. (laughs) These things are huge. They're huge. (laughs) Um, so we have a handful of preferred vendors that we work with that specialize in what's called heavy haul, which is our category. Um, we've dabbled with tech enabled ones and the tech enabled ones are not there because these are not commodity shipments. They're not 53 foot reefer vans. They require sometimes DOT permits, sometimes chase cars, things like that. And so we work with a handful of vendors that can help us deliver kind of exceptional customer service, things that we care about on time, communication, letting people know if you're going to be early, late, those type of things, and then deep sophistication around machinery. Makes sense. On the, the marketplace side, 
you know, you have a, it's a B2B marketplace, which I think is very, um, you know, starting to come online now, which is great to see. I think we saw the consumer facing marketplaces first and now both on the e-com side, which I'm sure you saw a lot of Bolt um, and just marketplaces in general, we're starting to see slow adoption. Um, why do you think now is the right time for this type of marketplace to move online? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So every space has different dynamics, um, but this is a universal that regardless of what job you had, what socioeconomic position you're in, um, the past two years forced you to do things online that you never did online before. And so folks got Amazon packages when they always went to Walmart. Why? Because Walmart was closed or maybe only open certain hours or they didn't want to wear a mask. And so they started to build some of those things that they weren't doing um, maybe professionally or maybe even personally before. And then they get back to their day jobs in their office and say, hey, why do I have to go to Staples? Or why do I have to do a purchase order to get this thing? They want that same level of convenience. And so we have that kind of meta trend behind us, right? The, the consumer world is coming for the business world eventually. In our space in particular, you have a handful of things. One, same thing that happened to houses happened in these auctions. A vast majority of people bought homes over the past few years sight unseen. How'd they do that? Well, they browse Zillow all the time. And then they did a crappy video chat with their realtor kind of walking through a house. Um, that's what happened to these auctions that, you know, an auction rep would be literally standing on the floor and you can't see me if you're listening to this in the audio, but they'd hold the phone up to the tire and they say, Hey, does this look good? And the person on the other side would say, well, you know, maybe can you go to the other tire? <laughs> and they built this muscle and they transacted that way. And the great thing about that is if they started down this path, they like it because they didn't have to hop in a truck or on a plane to go to the auction, but that experience that they had was subpar. And so we have this opportunity to kind of push that further and build the optimal experience there through the underwriting process that we talked about that delivers a trust experience online to get there. Um, and then finally, there's a demographic shift in our space. So I talked a little bit about the um, Association of Equipment Management Professionals and their certification program. Um, people are becoming more sophisticated. But two, the, this space in particular in construction is getting younger faster in the sense that um, middle managers left the industry post-financial crisis, so a decade ago. Um, what happened was that you were either senior and you stayed or your junior, you weren't paid a lot. If you're middle management and you weren't building shit, you had to get out of those businesses. And so now the generation that's taking over, they're taking over from 60-year-olds, but they're in their 30s and their early 40s. And so they have a proclivity towards wanting to use technology. So they're saying, hey, why are all our records stored on paper? Hey, why do I have to look at this print magazine to figure out what equipment to buy? All those type of things lead exactly into what we're building. That last piece in particular is one that I've seen very pervasive across a lot of these legacy industries. You're now just seeing that you know older millennial generation starting to take leadership roles and they demand technology and they demand people to actually shift. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a kind of second part of that that's maybe a little bit different, but I'm a big believer that there's not a lot of new ideas in the world, especially in startups. Things are kind of circular. They come back every 10 years and people say, hey, maybe now's the time. And sometimes that's the case and sometimes it's not. You know, Delivery in every single flavor has been tried for 30 years, right? Um, pets online, you know, pet supplies have been tried, all those things. In our case, in 99, um, they founded a big business in this space. They had an almost billion dollar exit 15 years later, but they never got to kind of the trusted managed marketplace aspect. Why? Because the underwriting technology wasn't there. They couldn't walk in a field with a cell phone at that time and take high quality photos and capture high quality video and audio. They couldn't tap in these maintenance systems or these telemetric systems to underwrite the condition of a machine. 
And so the underlying infrastructure in this space is caught up to that space that allows us to then change behavior in a way that's dramatically different than what they did before. That makes a lot of sense. Are you finding one side of the marketplace is significantly either easier or harder to bring on to Boom and Bucket? Um, yes, supply. And there's a few things going on. One, um, every supply chain in the world is messed up somehow still. Um, so chips affect this one. Metal importations from China affect the supply chain. Um, so new deliveries are backed up pretty substantially. If you want to buy a mid-sized excavator, you're probably waiting a year right now, maybe more. So people aren't getting rid of what they have. Why? They can't get a replacement. Um, they can't even get parts for a lot of these things right now. And so supply is pretty dramatically constrained. Um, in the kind of spectrum of marketplace to brokerage, I put us closer to brokerage right now in the sense that we change behavior oftentimes because somebody inquires about a machine through our website and says, hey, I want to make an offer. And we call them and talk them through it. Why? Because it's a big ASP transaction, so average sales price transactions. Um, and we're building that kind of service and trust with them kind of one deal at a time right now. They tell their friends, their friends come back, they come back for their next machine a few months later. It's kind of this virtuous cycle. And it's amazing to see, but we're not afraid to kind of do the kind of the hard manual stuff to help convert people on the buy side. As you've uh, dug into this space, especially with fresh eyes coming from different areas of tech, has there been anything that has just like blown your mind in terms of like WTF? I can't believe this industry operates this way. And it's all so interesting. I, I love it because like the results are so incredibly tangible in this space. Like you get to see things being built, which is really fun. Um, I just, I, I can't believe that the way that most of these folks transact or like, you know, they're literally in dirt fields. Um, you know, the paperwork's not automated. It's all incredibly manual. You know, here's an interesting thing, like financing the space, 65% attach rate for these machines. So most of them are financed, but most financing decisions take more than a week. Like insane. Right. And like, That's we crazy. think about, we think about the things that we've lived with for, uh, I've used plaid now for six, seven years, easy. Right. And like you have all these kind of cash flow underwriting tools and nobody uses it in this space because it's all super old school. And so um, around every corner, there's something like that. That's an opportunity for us. And the, the challenge for an operator like myself is not to have shiny object syndrome and to say, hey, what are we doing in this phase of our business? And right now that's us building a trusted marketplace. Step two, maybe we'll do some of that stuff. But step one is very clear. We say no to all that stuff. We sequence it. We find a good partner right now. We try to go faster on our core mission. Sounds, keep your head down and focus. I like it. The last question I always like to ask everyone is, has there been a piece of advice or um, something you've been told throughout your life or your career that are kind of words you live by just really stuck with you? Um, Joe Lonsdale taught me to only trust our own execution and not that of partners. And I think when you're trying to build trust as a new business, I think that's an incredibly important thing to think about. Your customers don't care if you're, if Amazon servers went down, they just care that they couldn't access your software. Right. And so in our business, we've got a lot of partners to do this. We've got shipping partners, we've got financing partners, we got, um, a bunch like that. Like it's on us at the end of the day. And like, that's the mantra I try to get the team to live with is that like, Hey, I don't really care if the partner messed up. It's on us to make sure that it gets done right. 
That's so true. Just being able to take responsibility regardless of how much control you have over it. And that's also, I think, what provides that A++ consumer experience or end user experience. Yeah, I agree. Well, Adam, thank you. It has been a pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and getting to learn more about both the industry and Boom and Bucket. If people want to learn more, where should they go? Boomandbucket.com. Pretty easy. Love it. It's a great name. Easy to find, easy to spell. Also just fun. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for the time today.